We just sang my sermon, which is really... <laughs> I, part of me says, let's just say amen and sing it again. What I mean is this. We just sang what all God's people are going to do for all eternity. This is a dress rehearsal. And what a good dress rehearsal it's been. And I almost don't want to spoil it by talking to you. Except what I have to say is to say, let's find a way to do this again and again and again. This feeds my soul. And I trust it feeds yours as well. It's been a really good season for me. Uh, an unusually good Advent season. Worship has come more easily, less distraction. I just feel like I've been able to gather with God's people and, and worship in, in a more profound way than is marked by some seasons. Now you might say, well, it's Christmas. Of course that should happen, but is that the real reason? Is that the only reason? Is that even a good reason? Because worship shouldn't be seasonal. Worship is what we're going to do for all eternity. I was so grateful that David made the point in his Christmas Eve message that worship is not seasonal. It's not supposed to come and go with special days marked on a calendar, even if those special days are good, special, given to us by God, and maybe some, some good things happen there. But we only have one Christmas and one Easter each year. What are the other 50 weeks supposed to be marked by? My hope is that they will be marked increasingly by the kind of worship that we're enjoying now. I want to press into just a little bit why worship shouldn't be seasonal, even though we recognize Christmas, we recognize Easter, and we're grateful for them. The truth is, both those holidays serve something bigger than themselves. They serve the gospel. No Christmas, no gospel. No Easter, no gospel. No gospel, no worship. 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us why Christmas exists. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. That first Christmas, Jesus came so that there could be a gospel a message that sinners could be saved, reconciled to God. Christmas, in that sense, serves the gospel. Colossians 1.21 and 22 tells us why Easter exists. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Like Christmas, Easter has a purpose. And Paul uses that little phrase, in order that, to tell us what that purpose is, to make it explicit, in order that he might present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, which he explains as reconciliation. Easter serves the message of the gospel. The cross serves the gospel. Christmas serves the gospel. And while it's right and good and joyful to have special seasons, 
that we remember particular aspects of that, his birth, his death, his resurrection. The gospel is not seasonal, and therefore worship should not be seasonal. My reason for pointing this out is that I'm a little greedy. I'm a little hungry. I want what I've had with you people in this room for the last few weeks. I want it next week and the week after and the week after. I'm not waiting 14 weeks for Easter to celebrate with you. I'm not waiting another 11 months for our next Advent season to say, ah, now we'll worship. I want it, and I want it now, and I trust that you do as well. I, I don't know if it's right to sing Christmas carols after Christmas. We did. Um, the ho Holy Night we sang because I specifically requested it. Maybe they were going to do it anyway. I don't know. But I wanted to set a theme for this message and for what will be for me my ongoing desire for the rest of this year, all of 2021 and beyond. I want to fall on my knees. I want to so see God and so understand and be impacted by the gospel that nothing's ever the same again. I don't want to look back on Easter. I want to be celebrating, or back on Christmas, either one. I want to be celebrating what they purchased for me every time we gather in this room. Well, it's in service of that desire, my desire to worship with you in intense and soul-satisfying ways that has me wanting to make four points before you this morning. The first three are explicitly supported by and illustrated with Scripture. And then the fourth has been what, for me, are some necessary implications. And I, I say for me for a reason. Once you hear what the first three points are you know, and what, what the real goal is, you might have your own way of arriving there. But I suspect, and the reason I'm going to share them, I suspect the same things that help me to worship will resonate. The same things that hinder me from worshiping will resonate. We're people. Things are in common between us. So the first point is this. True worship what we just experienced. True worship is an expression of wonder, admiration, delight, pleasure, or because I know that some of you didn't have the Christmas I had, didn't have the Advent season I had. You're here. It's been a while since joy has been what's marked your life, since delight has been something that is evident in your heart and in your life. But I pray that you're here because you miss it. You miss that experience with God. You miss that, that seeing of the Lamb in such a way that all the problems you walked in that were so big become small while your God becomes big. True worship is an expression of wonder and adoration when you see God in that way. I wanted to emphasize that at the very beginning because there is such a thing as not true worship. There is such a thing as vain worship. And it might sound the same. Jesus said in Matthew 15, speaking to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines 
the commandments of men. What do we do with our lips? We sing. We pray. We praise. We greet one another. What Jesus is warning us about is that that can be empty. It cannot come from a heart that's experiencing Christ as a treasure. It's not coming from delight. That's just what Christians do. We say these things. We talk this way to one another. <clears throat> well, by contrast, I want to remind you. It almost seems superfluous given what we just sang, but I want to remind you what worship is like in heaven where hypocrisy and half-heartedness cannot even survive. When you see, when I see, when anyone sees the Lamb of God, we will either explode in worship or run in terror because he's been the one before us all along. And we've either embraced or experienced him or we've kept him at arm's length so we could do what we wanted to do. Nobody will have mild approval when they see Christ. In Revelation, the book of Revelation, which gives us that glimpse behind the curtain, that not yet, but it's coming glimpse of worship that we practice every Sunday. From Revelation 5, and the setting is this, it's the throne room of God. He's seated on his throne. In his hand is a scroll with seven seals. It represents what is about to unfold. It represents the, the consummation of history. And the question goes out, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals? And some begin to weep because no one's worthy. And then someone says, the lamb is worthy. We pick up in verse 8 of Revelation 5. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What I just described is perfect worship. We won't attain to it in this life. But I put it before us because it teaches us something about the nature of what worship is. Worship is looking at the Lamb. It's looking at that King on the throne. It's looking at multitudes from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation who were purchased by His blood and seeing glory and worth 
to such a degree you can't be quiet. You will explode in worship. You see worth and you respond to it. And nobody has to tell you, let's, let's stand and sing. Nobody in heaven says, let's sing like you mean it because you will mean it. It will be what you've seen and what you've experienced and what is more real than anything you ever hoped for. I've been binging lately on C.S. Lewis, and I do mean binging. I was searching for a quote for this message. And I can kind of give you the quote. I'm not going to because it's so good I wanted to get it just right. So I'm searching. I'm online. I come across a, a website that's nothing but C.S. Lewis quotes. And I made it through page 58 of the quotes, and there's about 15 per page, so I'm, we're approaching 900 quotes, and I never found it. But I found so many other good things, and I'm going to share four or five with you today because Lewis, in my opinion, while I would not ask him to write a systematic theology, um, he knows a lot about worship, a lot. And he's got that gift of saying something very directly and succinctly, and he said this, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. What he means is this. You cannot glorify what you do not enjoy. If you don't see worth, if you don't see something magnificent in the Lamb and in what he's done, if you're not dumbstruck by the Father sending his Son into the world on Christmas so that we could kill him on Easter, which is what we did. If that doesn't make you catch your breath a little bit, something's wrong. You don't glorify someone merely by describing all that's good about them. You glorify them when you see it and you appreciate it and it brings a response within you. Try sometime telling a friend or maybe your spouse if you're really brave here's what I like about you you're honest you're kind you're generous you're faithful you can go on the list you always seem to say the right thing people can count on you but none of that really means anything to me I'm going to go watch a game Worship isn't worship because you've noted true things about God. Worship is worship when what you've noted about God stirs in your heart and starts to come out of your mouth and out of your life. By the way, that's really good news, whether you realize it or not. Because what you're called in is not to somehow find a dutiful way to fulfill what you're made for and, okay, I'm going to sing this song, I'm going to pray this prayer. What you're called upon to do is love God, delight in God, experience his beauty, experience the pleasure you found in him. Another quote from Lewis. This is maybe one of the only, maybe two or three times, I guess, that I've read something that physically made me gasp. And you know those things. They, they describe something so true that you probably couldn't even put into words, and then somebody puts it into words, and you go, oh my goodness, that's it. Here's what he said. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place 
where all the beauty came from. If you're a Christian, God is the place where all the beauty comes from. And our life as Christians is discovering that, encouraging one another to see that, fighting back against all the things that challenge that so that at the end of the day, you can say, I, I know where the beauty comes from and I will not be happy until it's mine. There is no true worship that is not grounded in the delight you get from beholding the one you're worshiping. Anything less is vain. That's the first point. The second point is this. We exist to worship. It's not something we do. It's supposed to be who we are. It's why we were created. Listen to God speaking through Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 5. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Whether you are a son or a daughter, whether you come from east or west, I don't care your people, tribe, tongue, nation, if he has called you to be his people, he has created you to be a worshiper. It is not something you learn to do merely. It's what you are supposed to be. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, which are just about the most foundational, blasé, normal things we do. We do them every day, many times a day, sometimes too many times a day. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's not supposed to be one hour on Sunday. It's supposed to be our life. If you've been through a membership class in the last few months, um, David, what we call starting point, David uh, will have explained to you what the elders have settled on as a reason why this church exists. You remember? They all begin with a D. We exist to delight. We exist to disciple, and we exist to declare. But truth be told, discipling and declaring are simply means of having more people that delight. You see that? What are we discipling them into? What are we declaring to them? We're discipling them into a vision of God and declaring to them a vision of God and the gospel of God that their heart might respond in delighted worship. John Piper's pretty good, too, at saying things very succinctly. And he said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. There's a passage in Mark's gospel that I think illustrates this beautifully. You know it. A woman comes to Jesus shortly before his crucifixion, and she has with her an alabaster box of pure nard. I, I didn't know what nard was. I had to look it up. It's an essential oil. It's distilled out of um, uh, a plant that's, that's from the honeysuckle family. And it doesn't grow anywhere in the Middle East. 
got to go to China or India to find it. So 2,000 years ago, this would have made a long overland journey to find its way into Jerusalem or Bethlehem. I forget where the scene particularly takes place or even if we're told. But she takes that alabaster jar of perfume and she breaks it open and she begins to anoint Jesus' body. Not everybody's happy. The disciples grumble. Probably won't surprise you to find out that chief among the grumblers is Judas. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, we find out that the minute this scene closes, Judas is on his way to the high priest to sell out Jesus. How much money will you give me to betray him? Here's how Jesus responds to all that indignation. And oh, by the way, we're told the value of that nard was 300 denarii. Denarii in that day was a day's wage. So 300 days' wages, that's 50 weeks at six days a week. What's that worth today? $40,000, $50,000? Depends, I guess, on what your salary is. It's a lot of money. People are indignant that $50,000 is dripping down off his body onto the floor. And here's how Jesus responds. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly, get out your pencil, pay attention. He's giving you his point. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole earth, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And I want to ask why. Why? Why remember a somewhat controversial and in one sense never to be repeated moment like this? Jesus is no longer on the way to the cross. He's not physically present for any of us to do anything like that. And yet he says, put this in the scriptures. So that every time the Gospel of Mark is read and you get to that part, or every time the Gospel of Matthew is read and you get to that part, you see what she did. Why? Be because this woman is meant to serve as an example, a template to the whole world. Because she did what she was created to do. She worshipped lavishly. That's what bothered the disciples. This was a little over the top, don't you think? Jesus is making the point there is no worship too lavish for him. I think some of you have experienced that. That's my hope, that's my goal, and that's my confidence that the day will come on the other side where we realize as satisfying as our best efforts were, there is no worship too lavish for Jesus. This is why we were created. She's in the gospel. That story's in the gospel so that you would have a template. You would have an example. We were created for this. Let me close this second point with a quote from John Frame. He is, last I knew anyway, a professor up at Reform Seminary. He said this, In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history, it is the goal of the whole Christian story. 
Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life, seen as a priestly offering to God. And when we meet together as a church, our time of worship is not merely a preliminary to something else. Rather, it is the whole point of our existence as the body of Christ. It's why we are created. It's why you still have breath in your body so it can come out of your body in song and in praise. So this is a dress rehearsal, folks. This is why you were made. We were created to worship. Third thing I want to call to your attention as we seek both to sustain what we've had these past weeks as well as maybe fan the flames uh, a bit. Third point is this. There is a corporate aspect to worship that cannot be replicated in solitary worship. Though, you should be worshiping when you're alone as well. Psalm 42, another very familiar psalm. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? <clears throat> my tears have been my food, day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. It took only a few weeks for me over the summer when we could not meet to feel the loss that the psalmist is describing in Psalm 42. His thirst for God, which is the focus of those first two verses. He says, I'm like a, a deer that cannot get enough water. Where's the water? I'm thirsty. I'm panting. That's the focus of the first two verses. But he doesn't say, let me get alone in my prayer closet with God and all will be well. He says, let me gather with the people of God. I want to be part of a throng. I want to be part of a multitude-keeping festival. Solitary worship is not enough for him because the consummation of worship, that kind of Revelation 5 worship, the consummation of worship is not found in solitude. It's found in a multitude. There's a similar connection in Psalm 16, another familiar psalm. Psalmist says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It's a great thing to say to God. You're my God. You're all my good. Look at the next verse. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Can David not keep track of his thoughts? God, you are all I need. Just give me Jesus. You're all my good. As for the saints in the land, that's where all my delight is. If we're going to give David credit for being coherent and this Holy Spirit credit for actually inspiring what is said here, you somehow have to put those two together. And here's how I think we put them together. The way I experience good, God, is not separated from my experience of God in you. When we come together, when I walk through that door, sometimes my, my soul is not on fire. It's not. We'll talk more about this in a minute but your soul is. What happens 
when my kind of lukewarm, frustrated, distracted, there's worth adjectives I could put to it, <laughs> but we'll leave it with those, sits down and I see your focused, heartfelt, Revelation 5 worship to God. It changes me. You are my good as you lead me into the presence of God who is my only good. Many have noted, delight is not complete until it's shared. You know that? How many of you love to get off just by yourself and watch your favorite thing, favorite game, or go to a concert alone, or wait months or years for the next sequel in a movie series to come out so you can sit in the theater by yourself? Very few people do that. What do we do? Come with me. Come on over. Let's watch it together. Even if they're rooting for the other team. Because somehow that delight shared is a delight doubled. Solitary worship can never fully replace corporate worship the same way a single log, no matter how brightly it's burning, can never replace a bonfire. And I want to be in the bonfire with you. What happens in this room for one hour a week can be replaced by nothing else. This is the throng. This is the multitude. These are the people making festival and singing, and it ministers to my heart, and I've seen it minister to your heart as well. Fourth point, last point. We must not approach worship. If, if all of what I've said is true, if this is an enjoyment of God that spills over out of your mouth, if it's why you were created, even if it's why we gather, then maybe we should give some thought to it. Many people do. The worship team gives great thought, and I am so grateful for our worship team. David or Jose or whoever is, is, is preaching gives great thought so that what they say is true and faithful to the text and shows you something of God that hopefully will stir something in your heart so that the worship is real. Many, many, many people give real thought to it. My concern, and I will say this more by way of confession than trying to foster any conviction, is I don't always, as a worshiper, give adequate thought to it. Let me just hit some of the areas, and you'll recognize these. Because we're meeting with a king, this is the big picture, folks. Because we're meeting with a king, gathering Sunday mornings to meet with a king, what should we do? The first thing we need to do is recognize what I just said. We're not meeting with one another. That's not the primary purpose. We are having an audience with a king. And that's going to take some work for you to get your head around. Because how many of you know a king? Probably none of us. Few of us might know a politician. That's a pretty dim reflection of a true king. When you read of a king, it's usually in the tabloids and some scandal that brought upon themselves. We live in an age where it's almost impossible for us to know what it's like to be in the presence of a king worthy of that title. A king of kings and a lord of lords. And so it takes some time take some effort to realize it's not a president, it's not a congressman, 
It's not even the royal family from England. It's, it's none of those people. This is a king. In a way, none of them will ever be a king. If you were to know that you're going to meet with such a king on Sunday morning, would you do anything differently Saturday night? Here's one of the things I try to do. And uh, try is the key word because I failed, but I, I put it before you because I think it's the right thing to try. I try to set up Saturday night to be ready for Sunday morning so I'm not harried, I'm not busy. Shirts ironed. Things are out. If you have kids, and we, and we raised four kids, I know the hassle of getting four kids in the car on time ready for church. Why is one shoe always missing? Why is the clean shirt that you put out for your three-year-old now covered with strawberry jam? Why didn't your spouse fill the car with gas? You thought they were going to do it. You know all those things. There's something about taking a moment to say, we're going to meet with the king that encourages you to take care of all those things so that they're not a distraction. Because you know what happens. <clears throat> you get in the car, and, and you've, you've timed it just right. And, and, and you've, you've dealt with all those distractions, and now people are driving slow. You missed the light. True story, Christmas Eve, three days ago. Heidi and I are in the car. We're coming here. I am so anxious to get with you and worship on Christmas Eve. I can taste it. We're going to be here early. So I can sit and prepare my heart and, and forget all the different things that I have yet to do. And there was an accident on Boynton Beach Boulevard. Traffic's backed up. I can see the red and blue lights flashing up there. We're not going anywhere. So we're resourceful. Got a pickup truck. We can drive over a curb. We make a left. And we get on old Boynton Beach Boulevard. Yeah, thank you. Apparently, there's a significant number of people that wait until 4.30 Christmas Eve to do their Christmas shopping. Limited numbers of them know how to drive. It took three cycles of the light to get across Congress Avenue. It took another three to get from Old Boynton onto Boynton Beach Boulevard. And we walked in two minutes late, and it killed me. I am frustrated. I'm mad at myself that I didn't allow more time. I'm, I'm mad at all those other people. Shouldn't have been. Here's the point. It took time, once I got in here, to push all that aside. I have a king. I have a king. He came into the world on Christmas. He died for me on Easter. The gospel has been in my life for 40 years. I have a king. The rest of that stuff doesn't make a rip of difference. But it took time. And I told you that time, having to do that, I was a conquest, full of anticipation, knowing that you're going to join with me and we're going to raise our hands and we're going to have a dress rehearsal for heaven unlike any we've had. So there's some very practical things in there. Saturday night, what do you do? Sunday morning, do you allow for that accident on Boynton Beach Boulevard? Because it makes a difference. It makes a difference. What do you do when you get here? 
I know what you do. I've watched you, and I do the same thing. We talk to one another. Keep doing it. Keep loving the saints. Keep meeting out there. And, and if I see somebody put their arm around somebody and pray for them, my soul, I'm worshiping before I ever get in here. And so that's beautiful, and it's good, and you should do it. But not till three minutes after service has started, in all honesty. Here's the point. We are commanded to love one another, and you guys do a great job of that. And that, that so encourages my heart and my spirit. But you won't be a worse friend by at 8.55 or at 10.25 <clears throat> graciously excusing yourself and coming in here and opening your Bible and reading a psalm and praying and pushing distractions away. You will not be a lesser friend. You will be a greater friend. Because what you need and what I need and what we need from each other is not each other but Christ in each other. You want water from me? I got a little well and a little bucket and a little rope and I can give you a little bit of water. You want living water? You want things that are supposed to pour out from everybody who has faith in Christ? It first has to be poured in and this is where it happens. You will not be a lesser friend because you made this hour a priority above all other priorities. You will be a better friend. You will bring more glory to God, not just because you were in here, because when you leave here, you've got something to leave with. For the sake of your own soul, for the sake of the souls of your brothers and sisters whom you love and who you are committed to edify, and for the sake of a lost world that's desperately looking for something worth saying, just a minute, I need to go worship a king. For the sake of all that, make this hour the priority in your life, and it will pay dividends in your soul. It will pay dividends in your ability to glorify God. It will pay dividends in your ability to love one another. To love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. It's another C.S. Lewis quote. To love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. Do you remember what was said of Peter and John? <clears throat> they were arrested. They were brought before the council. They've been told, stop preaching. You're making us look bad because you keep bringing up this Jesus guy. They're told, don't do that anymore. That didn't gain much traction with Peter and John. They kept right on, and they got called in before the council. They were arrested, spent the night in jail, brought in the next morning. And they were really vexing to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all the teachers, the high priest is there. Because they knew something about these men, they, they, by the way they dressed, by the way they spoke. You're common people. You're not educated. Might have even known they're fishermen. And yet, they were unafraid. And yet, they were skilled at speaking the truth. And yet, they could say things that the Sanhedrin could not shut them down over. Here's what Acts tells us. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
That's probably the greatest compliment you can pay anyone. When I see in someone wisdom and love and compassion and courage and boldness and, and the gospel flowing out of them, I know they've been with someone. This is the greatest testimony anyone can ever have. You want to be a better friend? You want to be a better witness to your neighbor, a better husband or wife or parent? Then be with Jesus. Let me see you be with Jesus. Let's be with Jesus together. And those things will happen. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. To those, there are those of you here that hopefully recognize and resonate with everything I've said. And this is just a reminder, just a word of encouragement, which is what I want it to be. If you're a believer, I hope nothing I've said is new. But understand, you have 10,000 voices in your life every week, whether it's through the television, the radio, music you listen to, people you work with, your own family, your own list of to-dos. You have 10,000 voices in your week that say this hour is not the most important thing. God is not the most important thing. He is, and it is. There are some probably for whom this is utterly foreign. You have no idea what I'm talking about because you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I know something about you. You're empty. You're empty and you're trying to do something about it. You'll continue to turn over rocks looking for something that will make you happy. You're going to turn over a lot of rocks. You may die turning over rocks. You will not find it until you go to the rock, Jesus. He alone. That's the place where all the beauty comes from. A call to repentance and a call to faith is a call to recognize that only in Jesus is the longing of your heart going to be met. Only there are you going to be reconciled to God. Only there do you find the place where all the beauty comes from. My last quote and with this I end, this is also from C.S. Lewis. <clears throat> All your life, an unattainable ecstasy hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it, or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Here's to attaining that unspeakable ecstasy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that every Sunday here you gather a multitude, a throng that sings worship, that encourages one another. Father, we want to see that continue, not just that we continue to walk through the doors and meet, but that the actual experience of your presence, the actual beholding of your glory, the declaration of your praise among other people that are praising you We'll make this place a bonfire. We want to burn, Lord. We don't want to be content with trite things, with worship that may at times border on vain. We want it to be real. We cannot do it, but you can do it in us. And we pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen.